with eWebinar, we're not really selling webinars. We're selling time, right? We're giving people their time back. And freedom has always been my my number one priority. So I was able to have some time, you know, a couple months to think about what are the things that make me happy? And then I eliminated all the ideas that did not fit into that. And eWebinar was one of the last ideas that were left, but it is the only one that actually speaks true to who I am, which is giving people back their time so they can live the life that they want to live. So I was way more intentional about starting with happiness first and then choosing a career or in this case, a business idea, and then knowing I could learn the skills to get there, which is completely reversed from the model we were taught, right? Which is learn the skills, go to school, pick a career that fits those skills, and then try to find happiness after. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked to Tanjia Alawaji Estrada, the co-founder of Bipod Podcast Creators. She told us about leaving a successful career in politics where she was a campaign director and how she found her true calling in building a community that supports underserved podcast creators. Our guest today is Melissa Kwan, co-founder and CEO of eWebinar. Melissa is on her third bootstrap startup, and she's doing this while living as a digital nomad. In our discussion, she shared why she chose the bootstrap way and how she made the decision to go a path that is not necessarily the path most commonly advertised for startup founders. She also had plenty of practical advice on what it takes to start a bootstrap startup, the advantages and sacrifices of living as a digital nomad, some of the myths about working with contractors, and finally, how to build and manage a fully remote team. Enjoy. Melissa, welcome. I'm going to start my podcast like I start every podcast. Tell my audience who you are, what you're doing right now, and how you got here, and you can take as much or as little time as you want. That's a big question. So... Melissa Kwan. I am currently the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar, which is a webinar automation system that uh, helps people turn any videos into webinars so they don't have to do them over and over live again. So think about sales demos, onboarding training sessions. So we turn any video into an interactive webinar that you can set on a recurring schedule. This is my third bootstrap startup. I had two other startups in real estate tech before this that spanned about, I guess, 10 years. I've uh, been running eWebinar for four years now. And I have a home in Amsterdam, but I'm really here for two to three months of the year and travel most of the year. So I'm kind of a most time digital nomad. Uh, and I'm actually moving to Bangkok in about a month for the rest of the winter, but probably going to make that kind of an Asia second home. So that's me. So you talked about the fact that you've gone through three startups, all bootstrapped. I know that sometimes the, the decision to bootstrap is driven by external circumstances, but sometimes it's also like a philosophical decision. What led you to choose the bootstrapping way and how has that worked for you? A lot of people think about funding in a business as financial decisions, but I think for a lot of bootstrappers and definitely myself included, Bootstrapping is a lifestyle choice. 
So what I mean by that is if you take venture capital, you're committing to a certain outcome of your business, and that committed outcome forces you to live a very different life than the one that I lead today, which is calling all my own shots, having a full team of contractors, not having any employees, not having an office, working as much or as little as I want. I grow very slowly. You know, I'm not trying to hit a certain growth rate so I can raise the next round. I'm not overspending. I focus on profit. Um, And that's just a very, very different lifestyle. And I guess that's why they call it a lifestyle business. But I think the media and a lot of VCs frame the word lifestyle business as if it's a bad thing. But I actually think it's a really good thing. And I think, you know, the other 99% of uh, bootstrap founders would agree. I think a lot of people, when they think about startups, they think they're most of them are actually venture funded. But in reality, only 1% of startups are venture funded. So 99% of them are like myself. They just don't get the spotlight. They don't get the media and they don't come out and talk much about, you know, their, their story, right? So for me in my last startup, I was struggling quite a bit because we couldn't find the first, you know, products that somebody would pay for. It took me two and a half years before the first person paid us $10. So there's a lot of iteration, lots of spending money. I was in a lot of personal debt as well. And when I moved to New York, all my peers were raising money and I tried to raise capital to, you know, save myself and save the company. But, you know, nobody would give me money because frankly, it wasn't a venture scalable product. Um, and I just didn't really know what I was doing, right? I was pitching VCs, but I was telling them what I, what I thought they wanted to hear based on what I was taught. And I wasn't really communicating, you know, my true vision, um, because I didn't have one. Right. I just wanted to build a company to pay myself a good salary, you know, make a good living. And that's just not a venture scalable business. But at the same time, I had to keep my company afloat. So while no one would give me money, I had to close deals and we actually became profitable faster. And at that time, I was becoming more and more free, being able to call my own shots. I left New York to travel full time for three years. And I was actually seeing my, my venture back founder friends being more stressed out. Because they were tracing growth numbers and needing to raise the next round. So I kind of got to see both sides of the coin, even though I never actually took venture capital, just through the eyes of my friends. And from that moment on, I realized like, I just, I'm not made for, for venture capital. I'm not made for that life. And ever since then, I've, I've been, you know, a diehard bootstrapper. And also, I guess I would say an advocate for bootstrapping as well. As you're telling your story, it's interesting hearing that there's moments in, in your challenging time where you were making decisions because uh, you thought that that was the way it was supposed to be because you were looking at your peers. And it's a very difficult choice to make to say, well, you know, everybody's zigging, I'm going to zag. Was there a moment when you started being intentional and saying, it's okay that I'm not doing it the way that everybody else is and kind of what it took for you to kind of get into that confidence. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard because I was in my, I moved to New York in my early 30s and I didn't have any friends, right? So I wanted to become a part of a community. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be like everybody else. And I was just surrounded by, you know, other startup founders and I was going to so many startup events. I wanted to network and everybody was doing this, this thing, right? This, this raising money thing and talking to investors. And I think what people don't understand about these kind of big cities, especially New York, is a lot of these people went to Ivy League schools and they were exposed to a much larger network 
of high net worth individuals and VCs than I could ever in my whole life, right? I grew up in Calgary, went to University of Vancouver. Like I came from a small town and I didn't have that kind of education. So what seemed to be really easy for these people, which by the way, they never talk about. Nobody talks about who their parents are and who their friends are. They just say, this is what I raise. But if you dig deeper, a lot of people have existing networks or had existing networks. So I was feeling like I wasn't good enough because I wasn't getting the result that they were getting. But I also wasn't seeing past the facade because I was new in the city. And it took a lot of self-awareness to come to terms with the fact that there are many different faces of success. And the only definition that matters is my own. Because I don't want to work that much. Right? If you think about like what it takes to take a company to 10 million, 100 million, and a billion, like that is your entire life. You don't have another life, right? And as much as you think you can have work-life balance, it's it's just impossible to have that outcome. You have to be addicted to work so much that that is what you live and breathe and dream. And I I knew, I guess when I was living in New York and a few years in and seeing you know, what my friends were doing, that I'm not made for that kind of sacrifice. So I guess that's when I not had like the confidence, but like really the clarity to understand that I don't want to be like them. So I think that took a lot of, you know, emotional and professional maturity, but also just awareness in what I really wanted and, and what I wasn't willing to give up. And what I wasn't willing to give up was having fun, living a life, having relationships, traveling, you know, building the company on, on my own terms. That switch was with the prior startup or? Yeah, it was with the prior startup. So eWebinary is the first one that you started with that consciousness, if you will, with like this, this clarity. Yeah. What differences were in the setup from the beginning, starting with that clarity? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that you asked me that because it it's, uh, sounds like you did your research. <laughs> um, so in my first two startups, I thought I needed to be like everyone else, right? So I built it thinking I'm going to sell this for like 100 million, but that number is arbitrary, Right. How did I come up with that number? Like someone once told me in my twenties that they wanted to make a hundred million dollars because it sounded cool. And then that became my number. So there wasn't, it wasn't like reasonable. It was just something that I wanted to do, but I suffered a lot through that because those businesses that I had the first and second time didn't even have the ability to hit those numbers. So I struggled a lot because I couldn't figure out a business model that would get me there. But I needed to pretend that that was what I was doing because that's a dream that I sold to my team and my co-founders. And that's a story that I needed to tell VCs because I was always running out of money. So I, I guess I suffered a lot in my first two startups because I wasn't true to myself. And it wasn't until like the last couple of years of my second startup that I had this confidence and clarity to be like, hey, you know what? Like this is actually the thing I'm building and I'm okay with that. And it's never going to hit those numbers, but I'm actually living a pretty good life because I was, you know, profitable, low burn because our team was in Canada and I was traveling and paying myself and I didn't have a single other worry. And then eventually that business was sold in 2019. So the difference is after I sold Spacio in 2019, I really got a chance to think about what my non-negotiables are. So I had a bunch of ideas. Like I, I sold a company for like pretty good money, like life-changing money, but not retirement level. 
So I, I knew I still had to work, but I didn't want to work forever, right? I didn't want to wait another two to five years to start something else. Like I needed to start something right away. So I had all these ideas and I thought, okay, how am I going to vet them, right? Everything sounds kind of good, right? When you're dreaming them up. And so I made a list of non-negotiables that will make me happy in my next company, right? That I need to have. So things like, you know, I have to have a remote team. It has to be able to be sold 100% through the internet. So no conferences, no trade shows, no booths, which means the price point has to be low, right? I want to be able to share my successes with friends. I want something that, you know, I care about that reflects who I am as a person. So, you know, with eWebinar, we're not really selling webinars. We're selling time, right? We're giving people their time back. And freedom has always been my, my number one priority. So I was able to have some time, you know, a couple months to think about what are the things that make me happy? And then I eliminated all the ideas that did not fit into that. And eWebinar was one of the last ideas that were left, but it is the only one that actually speaks true to who I am, which is giving people back their time so they can live the life that they want to live. So I was way more intentional about starting with happiness first and then choosing a career or in in this case, a business idea, and then knowing I could learn the skills to get there, which is completely reversed from the model we were taught, right? Which is learn the skills, go to school, pick a career that fits those skills, and then try to find happiness after. And that's why so many people live for weekends and evenings and they hate their jobs because they don't start from what makes them happy. And that really should be the foundation of everybody's decisions because learning the skills to be successful is the easiest part in running a business. So if you start from happiness as your foundation, even though things are hard, at least you know you're serving your own happiness. So that, I would say, is, is the biggest difference. Everything that you said makes a ton of sense. But as you have pointed out, that's the exact opposite of what we're taught. And I'm sure that there's moments where, especially in the beginning, before things started working out, where there's voices inside your head that are questioning what you're doing, why you're not doing like the other people. How did you stop them? What were like some of the things that helped you? I just stopped caring about external validation. I stopped caring about what other people thought of me. I think a lot of people, when they build startups and want to get on the media and they want TechCrunch coverage and they want to raise money, there's a lot of ego, right, involved in that. I mean, of course we have egos. We're founders, right? Like you would not be able to start a company if you if you didn't think you could do it. And, you know, it takes a certain type of special delusion to think you can like dream up something and make that a reality out of nothing. But none of that external validation contributes to your success and to your revenue. It literally does not matter. Right. If you appear on the cover of Forbes, you're going to be there for a week and then people are going to think that's pretty cool. And then nobody's going to remember that. So I think I just let go of, you know, wanting other people to think I was good enough and that I was going to be successful. And I just focused on what I wanted to do the most. And I actually detached myself from those kind of toxic environments 
where, you know, you go to a startup event and everyone's humble bragging and telling you all the stuff that they're doing and how they're killing it and, and all those things, right? All the things that you know you're not. And then you're hearing other people say that they're, they're doing awesome. And then you just kind of feel bad about yourself, especially if you're not, you're not doing well. And so I just actively detach myself from those communities that didn't serve me because they were not my friends, right? These were just business associates or other founders or like networking events, right? And I spent all my in real lifetime with friends that I actually like spending time with. And that's actually when, you know, I left New York to travel full time because, you know, if you've been to New York and San Francisco and, and those communities, like, you know, that's, that's really all there is. So I really just left, um, with, with my partner, David, and we lived on Airbnbs for three years. Eventually we found Amsterdam. Um, and, you know, we built a home here, but you know, that like the thing that I loved most about Amsterdam is no one cares about what you do. Nobody asks you, like, what do you do is not the first question. Whereas when you go to New York, it is, right? So the, the most refreshing thing about coming to Amsterdam was like, we don't even know what most of our friends do. It just never even comes up. It's really about spending time together, having fun, and, you know, going to parties and going to restaurants. Like, I, I really love that. So not only did I, I guess, let go of this external validation and this expectation that like someone else needs to tell me that I'm good enough. I also surrounded myself with people that, you know, gave me energy instead of taking it away. That it's fabulous. You know, you chose the, if you will, digital nomad life for a number of years. And now you're sort of like in a hybrid between that and more. For somebody who is interested in taking sort of a similar path, what are the things that they should be thinking about? I think the first thing you should know is that it's easier than you think. I mean, I don't have children, so I don't know what it is to have children. So caveat there. <laughs> if you're thinking about children and you want a digital nomad, you should also think twice, maybe. <laughs> but it's easier than you think because the sharing economy makes it so easy to, you know, live in Italy for two weeks in any small town that's affordable and you know, leave that place and then never see it again, right? Or if you want to spend two days in a castle in Italy, you can also do that. And then, you know, pay a fraction of the price and never have to manage it again. And that's really cool, right? And there are, you know, lots of digital communities that you can be a part of where you can just kind of plug yourself into. So like Nomadlist is one of them. But if you're more business driven, there's lots of like co-working spaces, lots of Slack groups. It is so easy to go to any city in the world right now and plug yourself into a community and just explore the city. And I think the second thing you have to think about is I think a lot of people can't like they feel like they can't do it because they're so attached to their stuff. Like, you know, you, you want to own all this stuff. And then before you know it, your stuff owns you. Right. It's like the more stuff you get rid of, the more liberating it is. So when we left New York, we got rid of most of our things. We had a storage like a make space storage, like a new age story where you like call your boxes back with an app. We had like a few boxes where we had like different changes of the clothes. So we'd still go back to New York once a season to like change out our clothes. Um, eventually when we got our place in Amsterdam, we got, got rid of that, but you got to know that it's easier than you think. It's super convenient to plug yourself into a community and you will be liberated if you get rid of your stuff and minimize because it allows you to travel and whatever you need. You can always pick it up, you know, 
at the place that you're at. Like David and I not only know about it for three years, we only did it on a hand carry. So we had like repacking spots. So um, I had my office in Vancouver. So we had some clothes there. You know, he had with his ex, he had a place in in Paris. So we had some clothes there. And then in New York, we had a few boxes. So we kind of planned our route so we could repack for the season. And then, you know, we would basically just go on Airbnb and choose like the next coolest spot that we've never been to. What is the hardest thing that you had to give up for the digital nomad life? I guess a sense of home. But it was like the benefit was outweighing the cost so much that it didn't really get to us until year three. <laughs> like when I say a sense of home, it's like everybody has their own setup, right? Like, you know, we love our Sono speakers all over the house. We love watching TV in bed. So we always have a TV in front of our bed, but turns out nobody else does. <laughs> right? So then we just like watch TV in bed, but on a laptop and it's like not really the same. So a sense of home is like your own setup, But because we were going to so many new places so frequently, all of that, you know, excitement was kind of making up for that until, you know, three years later, we're like, huh, you know, we were always in someone else's space. You know, we never have our own setup. It's it's never that comfortable. It's exciting, but it's never that comfortable. And that's kind of when we we started looking for, you know, a place that we could call home ourselves. Thank you. I want to go back to eWebinar for a second and the launch. I believe you said that the business is all contractors and there are people when they start a business that are concerned, what am I going to do if I don't have the right employees, if I cannot train them the way that I want? So for somebody who is thinking about starting a business and maybe using contractors, what are some of the challenges that you face and um, what are some of the ways that you got around them? Yeah, I think the misconception that people have about contractors is that they're less committed. But that is untrue because you get to define what that relationship is, right? And the thing is, our company would not exist if we didn't hire contractors because we couldn't afford people where we're incorporated, you know, which is, which is Canada. We can't afford to hire people in North America or Europe, right? Unless they're in Eastern Europe. And we can't compete with the funded startups or big companies that are constantly recruiting and the training costs is is super high, right, for a company like us. And because we're allowed to, and because we do contract, we're able to hire people for at market or above market rate at the region that they're in. And so we define these relationships, you know, I guess, by accounting standards as contractors, because they're not in the country where we're incorporated. But having contractors also allow us to hire people based on their expertise only, Right. A great example of that is we're not hiring a writer full time because some writers are better at writing long form SEO research pieces and some were not trained for that, but they can write amazing case studies. Right. So the, and if you're hiring a contractor only for SEO research pieces, then that person can work with five other clients and get paid for their highest and best use of time. Right. So it's actually best for both people. But the biggest challenge, I guess, is not really because they're a contractor, because it's a remote team, that everybody has to be self-motivated. And I think everyone thinks they're self-motivated, but not everyone actually is, right? We think we think we are who we want to be. So everybody wants the freedom, but when it comes down to it, like, Are you the person that's going to hit the deadline, right? Are you the person who's going to execute? 
because we're such a small team and we're so strapped for time and resources that we can't micromanage you. So if you are coming onto our team and we start, we need to start managing your deadlines and managing your deliverables, then you're actually adding work onto our plate and not taking it away. So I think that's the biggest challenge is like finding high quality, motivated, like self-motivated people who will follow through and do exactly what they say, right? And I don't think that's unique, right? To, to like working with contractors or remote team. I think hiring people are always difficult, but especially in this day and age when it's so easy to find a new job and hop around and, you know, especially after 2020, everyone's kind of working remote. It almost feels like like jobs are like commoditized, right? Oh, this doesn't work out for me. I'm not going to try very hard. I'm going to do this other thing. All right. So the way we overcome that, number one, is we we spell out our expectations up front, right? So there is full clarity on you needing to, you know, show up on your own. We don't want to micromanage and all those things, but we're also very upfront about a relationship not working. So we don't really bring someone on board, you know, full-time or long-term unless there's a one to three month kind of test period where we can both say, hey, this is actually not working out and we should, you know, we should part ways. You you mentioned that it's really important to have people who are self-motivated. What are some other things that are very important in having success with a team that's fully remote? I mean, accountability, I guess it's just another way of saying like follow through. I think you would be surprised how little of that there is nowadays. And also integrity, which I guess integrity encompasses, you know, many things. Because we don't speak every day and we're all in different time zones, if you say you're going to do something, I expect it to be done, right? And I think that's accountability, but also integrity of your word. I would say is the most important, right? Even if you are not like the best contributor or the most experienced or, you know, you're not delivering the highest quality work, I think all of that can change. But, you know, I'm not sure that integrity is something that can be learned. It's almost something that you have, right? Or it's, it's, it's respect, right? It's something that you have or something that you, you don't because maybe you don't prioritize it or, or you're thoughtless about it. So I think this worked both ways for the people that work for you and for you. But like, as a leader, what are some of the key things that you need to do to set up your remote team for success? Yeah, I think the best thing that we do with our team is we give them basically complete freedom as long as the customer comes first. So everybody has autonomy to make their own decisions. We don't have you know, holidays or time off, um, but you need to tell the person you're working with that you're not going to be there on a certain day. We empower them by giving them all the freedom that they want and need to make their own decisions. So we're not hovering over them. We're not micromanaging. We're not making them feel small, if if that makes sense, right? We're making them feel like they're their own business owners and that they're really part of our team as a partner and not as like an employee, right? Like we want them to feel like because they are um, contributing to the business, you know, like a peer. So nobody on our team feels like, you know, someone's looking over their shoulder or, you know, that we don't trust them. I think giving somebody full autonomy and trust 
is really important and sets up sets them up for success because it also makes them feel like that they can accomplish more than I guess they think they can, right? Like I always set the bar way higher than what I guess their experience level might might tell us, right? So I kind of see like I I guess I set a bar for them to hope that they shoot for the moon and kind of see where they land. And I would say a lot of times people either fulfill or or exceed those expectations. That's a very interesting approach. I think it works when you are aware that you're setting the bar maybe ahead of where the normal expectations are. How do you deal with them when they don't meet the bar? It just depends what they're not meeting. So is it a quality of work? Right. If it's a quality of work, then you have to ask, like, is it because they're, they don't have enough information? Because it does take some time to get onboarded. Or is it a matter of capability or attitude? Right. Maybe they just don't want to. So I think if they're not meeting the bar, we, we really ask ourselves, right? Like, can this be fixed? Is it too early on? Right. Is it a, you know, is it a matter of confidence? Right. Can we have a conversation with this person or do they just simply don't want to? And, you know, if we determine after some time, like after ample, you know, opportunities and chances that they, they're just not showing up, then they have to go. Right. Because we are so limited on resources. And I've written a lot about this, like firing fast, like is something that I think every, especially bootstrap leader needs to learn. But, you know, I think every leader needs to learn it's still hard, right? Because when someone doesn't work out or when someone doesn't meet the bar, you also have to reflect on yourself, right? Like, is your expectation too high for this person? Um, am I jumping to conclusions too quickly? But I think if you learn to listen to your gut, like a lot of times you you just kind of know if someone's not working out and that person just has to go. Okay, so we've talked a lot about how you built and how you manage your webinar for our listeners who may be interested in learning more, you know, what, what does the webinar do and where can they learn more about it? And then where can they find you? eWebinar is a webinar automation platform. So we turn any video into an interactive webinar that you can set on a recurring schedule. So you never have to do any of them live. So think about your sales demos, onboarding, training webinars that you're doing live over and over again, or you wish you could be doing but you can't find a person to do them. Um, we do them for you and we preserve, you know, a chat system that you can hop into respond live if you're there or you can respond later by email. And we have 20 different interactions that you can add to your webinar, like polls, questions, sales alerts, things like that to make it more interactive. So an e-webinar experience feels more like a two-way interactive TV and less like a Zoom where someone's just talking at you. But better than live, you actually don't have to be in front of a camera to do hundreds of them every single month. If you want to learn more about it, just go to ewebinar.com, exactly as it sounds, ewebinar.com. There's a demo on the site that is delivered, of course, through our software, and the chat is managed by myself. Uh, And if you want to connect with me, the best way is to connect with me through LinkedIn. My last name is spelled Kwan, K-W-A-N. Okay, great. So we're going to go to what I call the more personal section of the podcast. What's a hobby or interest that you have outside of work and how has it impacted how you show up professionally? So I party a lot. I go to a lot of festivals. I go to a lot of parties. I travel for parties and festivals uh, with my partner, David, as well, who is my co-founder. And we just like to have fun, right? And I think that's really important because life is so much more than work. 
even though work allows us to do what we do, we make it a point to live, like truly live and make a living at the same time. And I think how it helps us show up or helps myself, but also helps David show up at work is, you know, it's so important to enjoy the fruits of your labor as you're laboring, right? It's not like, you know, after, you know, in 10 years when I sell this company, then I can have fun. Or like when I retire, I can travel. No, like life is happening at the same time as you're building this company. This thing is hard enough. So what it allows us to do is just let all that stuff go during the weekday and just enjoy ourselves and and reminds us actually because we have so much fun when things are hard and you know when all the work feels like a slog it's just such a good reminder that we do this so we can do all those other things that that give us joy great it's my favorite question of the podcast every era has business expression practices cliche jargons that are so overused that they lose meaning, which is the one that drives you crazy? Killing it. (laughs) I absolutely hate killing it. No one's killing it. (laughs) Even the people that are killing it aren't really killing it. That phrase just irritates me so much because there's a lot of times I feel like it's not just overused, but I feel like it's a humble brag. And I think humble braggers like just irritate me so much. It just rubs me the wrong way. But actually I have one more, which is get shit done. Can't stand that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Okay, final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you go the body route, either a recipe or a drink that you find nourishing, or if you go the soul route, a book, a piece of music, movie, piece of art, something that right now you find nourishing for your soul. Can it be like anything that I feel like is nourishing for the soul? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I feel like the biggest thing that I have is traveling and trying like new foods in different cultures. Like I I think there's just so much of the world to discover. And part of moving to Thailand for the winter is because I just just haven't done a lot of traveling in Asia. And I'd love to explore more of, you know, Korea and Japan and just see what else is out there and see how people live and, and try the foods there. So I would say what's really nourishing for my soul are things that I haven't tried yet. And that's why traveling is, is such a big part of my life. Is there a dish from your last trip that really surprised you that you're like, oh, you know, is there an example of what you discovered in one of your recent trips of a good dish? I would say one of my, not a dish, but I would say one of my favorite food experiences is something called an omakase. And, you know, for people who are not familiar, omakase is like, it's like chef's choice in Japanese. So you would just sit at like a sushi counter and, you know, the chef just gives you like, 12 or 16 pieces of stuff that's just been flown in in the morning. It's more popular, I guess, in in Asia. It is actually quite a luxury experience. It's quite expensive. It's not something you can do every day. But it's like every dish is like a kinder surprise. (laughs) So I like that experience. Melissa, thank you so much. It's so refreshing. I'm thinking about when I started the podcast, if I could have like created the type of guest or type of conversation, I, I could not have created anything better than the conversation we had today. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us and good luck in your travel. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. 
And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars all the way. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And make sure you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're on. If you're on Twitter or Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast FM, now part of the script. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's called Fall to Fly. Enjoy. The snow would glisten like a sea of diamonds in the sun All bundled up in hat and mittens I'd be out the door and on the run To the meadow, my place Beneath branches of icy lace Arms held out, eyes shut closed I'd lean back and just let go And I would fall to fly A snow-white angel I'd spread my wings to the sky How I'd glide But soon I'd crave The city lights, they seem far brighter than the moon on snow Turned in my wings for earthly things Forgot the feel of clouds on indigo I was strong, I was proud Keeping both feet on the ground I feared love like I feared height I just didn't realize that I can fall to fly A snow-white angel, I spread my wings to the sky Yes, I can Fallen snow at dawn, you move me And with you by my side We'll soar, we will climb Straight to the heaven skies And we'll fly A snow-white angel I can
for snow and then I know the angel flies once more fall to fly